Welcome once again to all of you and encourage you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, to the book of Mark chapter 14. Our study will come from the book of Mark chapter 14 and it will be on the arrest, the arraignment, the interrogation of Jesus. We are here in his last week, the last week of his life. In fact, this is the last evening of his life in which he has already spent the last supper with his disciples and has brought them encouragement and comfort in his words in John 14 through 16. They have already gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus has faced the greatest temptation, perhaps, of his ministry. They have come to arrest him, and they have arrested him and taken him away now to the second phase of his trial. And in verse 53 of Mark chapter 15, the text reads, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death, began to spit at him and to blindfold him and beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Let's bow once again in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand the severity of the humility that our Lord Jesus faced in his arraignment and his condemnation, falsely accused in this trial that was a travesty of justice. Open our eyes that we might see once again great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Today, when you turn on the news, there are all sorts of reports, controversy, about what is right, 
what is fair, what is just. There have been plenty of news stories in the past month of people receiving help while others have not. Some have received loans, others received too much perhaps, others received nothing. Some have received supplies that they have needed, others have not received anything. Some have received food and others have received nothing. States and businesses that have been allowed to be opened while others are told they had to close their doors. Simply put, the issue often seems to be not fair, not just, and especially more so if someone is on the short end of the stick. They may ask, why is it that my family is struggling, whereas another is not? Why is it that I've lost my job, whereas others have kept theirs? Why is it that I am in this particular situation and others have it more easy? Why is it that some people are healthy and I am sick? Our hearts are so often tempted to say, it simply isn't fair. What have I done to deserve this? These are not uncommon questions that people ask when suffering happens. But the questions presume a number of things. The questions presume that we are perhaps good people, that perhaps we are innocent in God's eyes, Perhaps we think we deserve to be blessed. Perhaps we think we deserve to be happier or to have what others have. Perhaps we think we deserve to have a longer life. Perhaps we might even feel a sense of entitlement because we have not done anything that is, quote-unquote, explicitly bad. We may think it's not fair. Biblical counselor and author Wayne Mack writes, from years of personal and counseling experience, I know that nothing is more damaging to us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and behaviorally than responding to the unpleasant, unwarranted, and in our judgment, undeserved circumstances of life with the, quote-unquote, it's not fair attitude. It eats away at us like cancer or leprosy, It is a killer that destroys our joy, hope, faith, love, and usefulness for Christ. And from years of personal and counseling experience coupled with biblical knowledge, I also recognize that nothing is more helpful to us in overcoming the tragic results of being infected with the, quote-unquote, it's-not-fair attitude than possessing the knowledge of who and what God really is and the implications of that knowledge, unquote. That's from the book entitled, It's Not Fair. He continues to write about how that attitude is expressed in the Bible. Rachel expressed that attitude when she complained she didn't have children, and Leah, her older sister, did. When the older brother, in the story of the prodigal son, talked about the fattened calf when the younger son came home, or their parable of the workers who had agreed to a certain amount of pay early in the day only to complain later against those who came and received the same pay later on, or how Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness, or how Jeremiah said the same thing when he was oppressed because he was given a message of destruction. We easily say the same thing. In our own hearts, we may say, well, He doesn't deserve that, or someone else is getting the credit that I deserve, or I always get the short end of the stick, or I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a victim 
that teacher doesn't like me, it's so unfair, and we cry unfair and complain against others because oftentimes we compare our circumstances with the circumstances of someone else, usually someone else who has it better than us. But as great as we think we've been mistreated in this life, as difficult as we may think our particular circumstance is, there is no greater injustice that has ever happened than the injustice that happened to the Lord Jesus when he was falsely accused, when he was unjustly tried, and when he was brutally murdered for the sins of others. And yet, he submitted himself to God. He submitted himself to the wisdom of God, the plan of God with his entire life, and he submitted himself as a sacrifice for sinners in a travesty of justice. And we learn from that to also submit ourselves to the hand of God and what God has planned for us. This text this morning is about the arrest of Jesus. Jesus, as I mentioned, had been in the Garden of Gethsemane at night when a contingent of up to a thousand soldiers, temple guards, religious leaders, they all came carrying swords and clubs and torches to arrest Jesus and they haul him off to a trial in the greatest travesty of justice. As we look at this passage, it's helpful for us to understand the judicial system that had been set in place according to the law when someone was arrested, when someone was accused, when someone was judged worthy of death. During the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish authorities had established the rule of law. In a local council, in a local area in Israel, if there were at least 120 men who were the heads of their household, they could have their own little Sanhedrin, and their own little Sanhedrin, the word Sanhedrin meant sitting together. That local council would be the rule of law that would make judicial decisions and would composed of 23 men drawn from the leadership in that local area for the synagogue. An odd number was always given so that there would be any determination when there needed to be a vote. But the great Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, also called the Council of the Elders, also called the Senate of the Sons of Israel in Jerusalem, was the highest court in Israel. They were called the great Sanhedrin, and they patterned themselves after the Council of Elders that Moses had convened in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. In Numbers eleven sixteen, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men, of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there before you. So Moses had the 70 men. These 70 men plus Moses formed a council of 71 who would govern the Israelites in the wilderness. And the great Sanhedrin patterned themselves after this pattern. And so the council, the great Sanhedrin, also had 71 there were 24 in the Sanhedrin, or the great Sanhedrin, 24 chief priests. These chief priests were the heads of the 24 priestly divisions in 1 Chronicles 24.4. So there were 24 chief priests, and there were 46 more elders chosen from among the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. So you had 24 chief priests, and you had 46 elders who were chosen from the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. 
And then you had one more to be the tiebreaker in case there was a vote. The high priest who served as the overseer, he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, and that would make 71 the odd number to ensure that decisions would be reached by majority vote. This was the great Sanhedrin. That was formed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but by the time of Jesus, that Sanhedrin had become corrupt, had become politically motivated. Men could buy an appointment to the council with political favors. People could buy their way in politically, sometimes even with money. Sometimes favoritism, partisanship, nepotism, ran, rife, political expediency, sometimes determined who would rise to power in this particular Sanhedrin. And you would think that the high priest would be subject then to no one except for God, but that wasn't true. The high priest was subject to Rome because Rome could exercise ultimate control over the Sanhedrin Rome could appoint or depose a high priest. So they were subject to Rome, and of course, they didn't like that. But both the high priest and the ruling priest of the temple were all Sadducees, and they openly denied the supernatural elements of the Old Testament. There was great, great political tension between them and between the citizens of Israel, between Rome, because here they had positioned themselves in a way that would be between the people and Rome. They didn't get along, so they had all sorts of difficulties because of the political structure that they were in, because of the corruption that was there. But they had plenty of reason to unify, the Sanhedrin did, because they hated the Lord Jesus. Now, during that time, they had established the rule of law as well. The rules of evidence, the principles of impartiality had been established in Moses in the judicial system. And these were the rules of law that were in place. And it's important for us to realize what they are as we look at what happened to Jesus. The rule of law, for example, included that they required two credible witnesses, credible witnesses, in order to establish guilt. Number two, the accused was entitled to a public trial and a defense. Number three, it included the right to call witnesses and to present evidence. And number four, to deter anybody from bringing false testimony against somebody who's accused, the Mosaic Law established this principle in Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 19 that if somebody brought an accusation against a witness and that accuser was found to be false, then whatever penalty would have been ascribed to the accused or the defendant was then going to be laid upon the accuser for their perjury. And in the cases of death penalty, well, that false witness would have been put to death. It is a very serious thing to bring an accusation against someone. It better be true, because if you're found to be false, whatever penalty would have been ascribed to the one you're accusing would then go to you as a false witness. But if it were found to be true in the case of a death penalty, the first blow would be given by the witness that was, of course, in the Jews, generally stoning. 
That would be the idea of letting the first stone be thrown by the first witness. Fifthly, rabbinical tradition had added another restriction on death penalty cases, and that was that the council had to observe a full day of fasting between the passing of a sentence and the execution of a criminal. They had to fast. And what that did was it prevented hasty trials from happening. It prevented hasty executions. It kept capital cases because there had to be fasting. It kept capital cases off the books during feasts and festivals because food was such a big part of those feasts and festivals. So it kept it off the docket and it allowed extra time for the defendant to have a witness or to have further testimony or evidence presented. Sixthly, After the obligatory day of fasting, the council members were then again polled. So you'd fast if there was a verdict of death penalty. Well, they would then again fast, and after they fasted, they would be polled to see if they had changed their opinion. Seventhly, guilty verdicts could be overturned, but innocent verdicts could not be rescinded. And These particular laws were established to establish mercy and fairness and justice to be sure that someone who was accused had truly committed a crime and had an adequate defense and they would be uh, treated properly in the proper jurisprudence. To maintain fairness, there were more rules as well. The council, for example, Sanhedrin, could only try cases where there was an outside party who would bring the charges. They themselves couldn't. If council members brought charges, well, the entire council was disqualified from trying the case. That was number nine. Number 10, all witnesses had to give precise, consistent testimony as to the date, the time, and the location of the event under question. You couldn't have a witness that would just say, in general, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. Number 11, women, children, slaves, and those who are mentally incompetent were not permitted to testify. Number 12, persons of questionable character were also disqualified from being witnesses. Number 13, the council had to presume the accused to be innocent until they reached an official guilty verdict. Number 14, criminal trials were not to be convened at night. And number 15, if a trial was already underway when nighttime fell, the court was to be recessed until the following day. Now again, all of these rules and procedures were established for the most part so that one would have a just trial, one would have a fair trial, and was merciful towards the defendant as the defendant was considered innocent until proven guilty. But nearly all of these rules and regulations were not followed the trial of Jesus. Why? Because they had already determined the verdict. They had already been conspiring about how to put Jesus to death. They would falsely condemn the Son of God and the ultimate injustice and the travesty of justice that would take place. And it would be in a clear violation of the Mosaic law because Jesus would be tried 
privately. He'd be tried at night. He'd be tried away from the temple just hours before the Passover would begin. His enemies brought charges without credible witnesses. It gave no opportunity for a credible defense, pronounced no legitimate verdict. They sought immediate execution the same day. All of these things, from the arraignment to the interrogation of the testimonies, it was a corrupt process by which they had tried the Lord Jesus. Nothing about these proceedings would be legal or just. Jesus' trial, we look at here in this particular text. Now, the trial of Jesus, when we look at the trial of Jesus, it is divided into two phases. Two phases. There is a religious trial and there is a civil trial. The religious phase of the trial would be before the Jewish Sanhedrin and the civil phase would be for the Gentile political authorities in Rome. And each of these two phases would have three parts. They would have the interrogation, they would have the arraignment, and they would have the sentencing. So too, in the civil trial, they would have the interrogation, the arraignment, and the sentencing. And John records this particular event right before this particular section. Now, as we look at the book of Mark, Mark here in chapter 14, verse 53, this is the second part of the Jewish trial. As I mentioned, John records that right before this time, after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is taken first to Annas. And it says in John chapter 18, John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14 and 19 through 23, he is taken to the high priest, Annas, as a gathering, while, on the other hand, Caiaphas is convening the Sanhedrin. And in John chapter 18, verse 14, it says, the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest of that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised that the Jews it would be expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And in John 18, 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So they arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They take him to Annas, and it said that Annas was the high priest. And it says that Annas was the high priest, but it also says Caiaphas was the high priest. Why? Annas was actually the former high priest. But just like today, when we call upon our former president. We don't call them former president. We say, hello, Mr. President, or whatever. They keep their title. So too, Annas kept his title as high priest, even though he wasn't the one that was currently in office. But he was very much to the Jews regarded as the true high priest because of his power, because of his position. In the life of Annas, he had five sons that would at Different periods of time would take various times in which they would be the high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, would be the high priest now at this time, the reigning high priest at this time. So he had a lot of influence. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of influence. In fact, he was so powerful, as you know. Just a few days earlier, on Tuesday, on Tuesday, Jesus had come into the temple, and he had overturned the temple money changers' tables. It was the area of the court of the Gentiles. It was also known as the Bazaar of Annas, sort of like the flea market of Annas. It was named after him. He was the one who was the head honcho. He was the one who was in power. And he was the one who Jesus had offended greatly, especially because he had stopped all of the marketeering as he had been the huckster who was really in charge of the corrupt temple business. 
So you know that Annas really was the one who pulled the strings. Now in John 18, at that first interrogation done by Annas, it is recorded in John 18 that they questioned Jesus. Now Jesus answered him and said, I have spoken openly to the world, John 18, 20. I've always talked, taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. When they brought Jesus to Annas, it wasn't this uh, sort of friendly, hi, how are you? Are the Romans treating you well? Would you like a cup of coffee? Do you want a lawyer, etc.? No doubt it was none of that. Annas was motivated just like the rest of them to be rid of Jesus. They had been plotting his death for quite some time. The most obvious charge that they could bring on Jesus was the charge of blasphemy. But that carried a little bit of a quandary because even though Jews would be offended at blasphemy and they could cry out for his death, Rome would never put somebody to death for blasphemy. They didn't care about any of the religious offenses. They would put somebody to death for insurrection, for rebellion against Rome. What Jesus says to Annas, when Annas is questioning him, he says to them in John 18, 21, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, the reason why Jesus responds in this way was what he does is he exposes Annas. He was pointing out to Annas that he, the high priest, was required to have witnesses to establish a just cause for his arrest in the very first place. If, if, if they were going to arrest Jesus, they had to have witnesses so they could figure out what the cause was so that they could arrest him with a just reason. But he pointed out to Annas that he didn't have one. There were no witnesses. Why ask him? Ask other people. Well, when he said that, the soldier next to him struck him. Officer standing next to him struck Jesus. He said, is that the way that you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Underscore. There is no basis by which they would have had reason if they had witnesses. Jesus exposed Annas's motives to try to garner out of Jesus some sort of incriminating content. And at that point, at that very initial interrogation, having no witnesses, not following procedure, they should have released Jesus if they had followed protocol. But verse 24 of John 18 says, and Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And that is where we pick up the context here in verse 53. They led Jesus away in Mark 14. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. This is phase two right here in Mark chapter 14. Phase two. Now the high priest in verse 53 is Caiaphas. He is the son-in-law of Annas. He's been across from usually what they would have in this family arrangement. They would have a courtyard. And in this case, the context tells us 
in the book of John, as well as the Gospels, that the, 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 the distance in which they had to take Jesus from where Annas was to Caiaphas wasn't very far. He would have been in this courtyard as the homes of Annas and Caiaphas, they shared a common courtyard and it was typical for son-laws or sons to build homes adjacent, attached to their parents' homes. And so they would have traversed this very short area. And it would have been in that area that you would have found Peter and John, it's not mentioned here, but mentioned in the gospel, John 18. But you would have found Peter here warming himself, warming his hands in the coal around that area, listening in. For it says in verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Peter had initially run like the rest of the disciples, like everyone else. Everyone had abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Peter, to his credit, he still had a heart to know what was going on. He still hung around, even though it wasn't public. He still tried to eavesdrop in because he cared about the Lord Jesus. It wasn't as if Peter had abandoned Jesus completely. He wanted to know what was going on, and there he was. He probably may have even seen Jesus being escorted from the house of Annas across the courtyard to Caiaphas' place. And John would have been there too. He would probably would have been the one who uh, let them both in. He was known to the high priest, John eighteen sixteen, it reflected his family's social status such that he would be allowed entrance. And so here he was, just a sidebar, so that we know Peter still cared very much for the Lord. But then we come to verse 55. After Jesus is led away to Caiaphas's house and they have... These witnesses, these false witnesses, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. While Annas was interrogating Jesus at the very beginning, the initial interrogation, Caiaphas, no doubt, was trying to get the Sanhedrin together. This is the middle of the night. The whole council was trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This was the arraignment of Jesus. And the arraignment is where formal charges are read out to a defendant. That's what the arraignment is. In our court system, when one is arraigned, you're, they'll bring up charges. They'll say that you're being charged with this, this, and this. How do you plea? And the defendant enters a plea. And at that time, in our court system, the judge determines whether or not you're let go and remanded or whatnot, or you're placed in jail with your bail is, all that sort of thing, I think. But here, what are they doing? What are they doing? It says the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, remember all of those laws that I had read to you? One of them was that in Jewish law, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to initiate charges. They were only allowed to investigate charges and adjudicate the cases that were brought before them. But here, everything is convoluted. Members of the Sanhedrin are bringing charges, but that's a problem. Not only is that a problem, but they don't have witnesses that can, can testify to the charges. So they don't have any charges yet to bring until they find witnesses. And so what they need to do then is they need to scrounge around here in the middle of the night to find witnesses. And that's really a tough sell because, you know, at that time of the night, it's going to be hard to find witnesses. Problem. But they had to do this so they could charge Jesus. I mean, it would be as if 
Someone came to your house. The police came to your house in the middle of the night to tell you, we're arresting you for something, which we'll figure out later. And then they haul you off to jail in cuffs. And then the judge comes in. And then the judge is looking around at night on the street, trying to find people who are going to come and testify against you about what you have done so that they can charge you with a particular crime and tell you exactly why they're arresting you. Now, I'm sure you would be crying out for your lawyer and threatening to sue your police department, maybe. But that's the scene of what is happening. Here it is, those who are supposed to be the judges, who are trying to find witnesses so they can bring formal charges against Jesus. And the Bible says, verse 55, they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Seems to me like whoever plotted this whole thing out just wasn't very good at their planning. Trying to find people in the middle of the night. Maybe they were just people they found on the street, I don't know. Perhaps they were half asleep, perhaps they were drunk, dressed, trying to testify against Jesus. It would have been hard to find a credible witness and when you're finding witnesses and their stories don't line up, you've got a major problem. It's not that they couldn't find anybody who would testify. There were plenty of people that says who would stand up and testify. But even their testimony was inconsistent. Verse 57, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, not even, it says in verse 59, in this respect, was their testimony consistent. They had really messed that one up. Jesus didn't say that. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And do you know when he said that, by the way? He said that three years prior, at the very first Passover to the day. But, that testimony, even if it wasn't from a credible witness, even if it weren't from a consistent witness of multiple people, even if it wasn't accurate, it was enough for Caiaphas, the high priest, to jump all over that. That testimony should have been tossed out because of its inconsistency, because of the credibility of the witnesses, but it was enough for Caiaphas to jump on that. Because in the mind of the Jewish judges, in the mind of the Sanhedrin, in the mind of Caiaphas, it was twisted in its understanding. Jesus wasn't talking about his body in his mind's eye. He wanted to overthrow the temple. He wanted to overthrow the temple. They said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another one made without hands. To them, the temple was significant in that it represented the entire Jewish religion. And to them, that was blasphemous. They would make vows against the temple. And they could pin that on Jesus, that blasphemy. I mean, that temple had been in the process of building Herod's temple. This was Herod's temple. It had been in the process of construction for some 46 years, John 2.20 tells us. What they interpreted it mean was completely preposterous. But here, Caiaphas jumps all over that. And he coerce this incrimination of Jesus. Verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, do you not answer? 
What is it? These men are testifying against you, and he kept silent. Now, Jesus was under no obligation to testify. He did not have to answer, and he chose not to respond. It reminds us of what Isaiah 53, 7 tells us. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And of course, this frustrated Caiaphas, and Caiaphas said, again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And in Matthew 26, it adds on to that in 63, I will put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, Caiaphas was all worked up here. He was well aware of Jesus' own claims. Jesus had made that claim many times in the past, John 4.25, Matthew 16.20, John 9.35-37. Caiaphas could just get Jesus to admit this in public in the hearing of the Sanhedrin. They would consider it blasphemy. And according to Leviticus 24.16, it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. That would be the nail in the coffin. Caiaphas presses this question on Jesus without shirking from the truth. Does Jesus what see? What does he say? I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He uses the name, the euphemism of God, the name, proper name of God, I should say, I am, as God had revealed himself to be. And he says, you shall see the Son of Man a designation for the Messiah, sitting at the right hand of power, a euphemism for God, coming in the clouds of heaven. And to Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin, Jesus had then committed blasphemy. That was the only reason, by the way, that the high priest could tear his clothes. All other judgments he could not. But he tore his clothes because he believed it was blasphemous. And he declared, there's no longer any lead for any more witnesses. And they all condemned him him to death. If they had followed proper judicial procedure, what they were supposed to do at this point then would be to vote. They were supposed to, of course, fast and to take a vote with the youngest going first when they did vote. A scribe was to take down who would, who would be the one who would vote in what way, and the youngest would vote first so that they wouldn't be influenced by those who were older, older members of the Sanhedrin, and those votes would be tallied by a scribe, but not on this night. No. He was not allowed to call any witnesses. No one was allowed to speak in his defense. No voice of caution. No plea for mercy. No evidence to support his claim was ever considered. They went from contradictory Witnesses who are not credible, directly to the condemnation of Jesus, to the death sentence. And then came the abuse. Then came the abuse. The spitting, the blinding, the beating, the mocking, the slapping of him in the face. To the Jew, when one spat in your face, that was the ultimate insult. And it wasn't just these things that Mark records here. Luke 22.65 tells us that many other things, they blasphemously spoke against him. They blasphemously spoke against him. 
well. In all of these things, in this miscarriage of justice, the abuse, the insults, what did Jesus do? To cry, this is not fair. You shouldn't be doing this. You should stop. No, he simply took it. He took the abuse. He endured the shame. He took the beatings. He said nothing. Why? Because he knew God's plan. He submitted himself fully to God's will. This is what Peter would later write about in 1 Peter 2. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. He entrusted himself. He entrusted himself who judges righteously. Maybe you've been one who has been mistreated or insulted, things that maybe don't seem fair. Maybe you've even had the opportunity to bring things up in a cordial, kind way. Maybe you've lost something, lost a job, lost a loved one. Things may not seem fair to you. Maybe you've had a difficult time handling the stresses of our time. Maybe you've had the short end of the stick. How are you going to handle it? How are you going to handle it? It is easy to become not just frustrated, not just angry. It's easy to become bitter or resentful or to blame others, to lash out because you're so upset, maybe even hostile. How do you handle it? The writer of Hebrews encourages us in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, let us run with a race, with endurance that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't grow bitter. Don't lose heart. When you've been mistreated, when you've been the one to receive the short end of the stick, Jesus set his sight on the joy that was before him, and he endured the cross. His eyes were on eternity. He committed himself and submitted himself to the good wisdom of God. Today's suffering, today's injustice, when we set our eyes on the right things, when we set our eyes on the things that will be for eternity, the joy that will come, the testimony that we will bear for the glory of God far exceeds and outweighs the temporal difficulties that we may have. Because God is the one who will be just, and will bless, and he will honor, and he will take care of those who are his own. Let us run that race with endurance 
that is set before us. Let us consider him who has endured such hostility. And when we think about that, we are to, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for the suffering that our Lord Jesus faced, that we might have life, life eternal. Father, we know that you are the one who is in control. We pray, God, that we might commit ourselves to you, that, Father, our conduct might always be a testimony of our trust in you, that you would help us, Lord, to be people who are at peace, and that, Father, you would help those who may be struggling with frustration and anger, with resentment, with difficulties in their own hearts, that they would be patient, that, Father, you would help them to entrust themselves to you, that we might set our eyes on the things eternal and realize that the things that we face in this world are but temporal, but the testimony that we bear, the witness of you, might win souls for eternity. We pray, God, that we might be witnesses thereof for all that you have done for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.